man, where do you even begin? Um, beginning at the beginning, I guess. Right? The very beginning, Angela, what drew you to magic? So I think the probably the bigger question right there is what doesn't attract someone to magic? It's uh, It really is one of those things that when you have your first experience seeing a live performer, because one of the things that always comes up in magic is that you can never... Up until the point that you perform for someone else, all you're doing is practice. Mm -hmm. You can play the piano by yourself and have music. You can do a interpretive dance with you or with a partner and it's still dance. But up until you share magic live with someone else, uh, you are just practicing for yourself up until that point. So for me, very much having that first interaction with a magician when I was a kid was, oh. Mm -hmm, And that first magician was my dad. Oh, really? Yeah. So my dad's hobby was magic growing up. And for me, I just remember uh, him showing me it's it's a really old magic trick. You can find it in like 19th century magic kits <laughs> level. Um, but this is a plastic uh, cup and it has uh, it has a red ball in it. You take off the lid, you show the red ball to your spectator. You put the cap back on, you take it off and the ball's gone. Then you put it back and the ball returns. Uh-huh. So I'm five and this is immensely amusing to mind me. Mind blows <laughs> your yeah. fucking mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, I'm like, show me another one. So he shows me a card trick. And, uh, you know, of course, I was amused. And then um, later on, when I get older, I go, how'd you do it? And my dad then showed me the card trick one more time all the way through and then handed me the deck and said, go. Wow. <laughs> so that was how I got into magic. Um I wasn't, quote unquote, taught magic by my dad um, necessarily as much as he handed me a book then and said, okay, you can read all about it in here. Mm-hmm. So um, I also had to learn how to read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things. First step. Yeah. Right. First things first. <laughs> so um, my dad had a mini library of magic kind of stuff. And I actually got more into magic through what's considered, I guess you would say, the back door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got into magic history before I got into performance magic. Okay. Ah, so yeah. the performance side, I flipped through the book, put it aside. Gene Hugert is a little too advanced for me. Uh, magicians on this call will get that. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they feverishly uh, tweet us. But yes. anyways, uh, so uh, I then read, though, about the lives and stories of famous magicians. Most of them were clustered in the 19th century or early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, book I was reading was Walter Gibson's Master Magicians. And uh, for me, I just got really sucked into it. And I thought, whoa, these people are so cool. Mm -hmm. That's also, though, when I met the first female magician Mm -hmm. um, that I can ever remember encountering either literature or in person. Right. And that was Adelaide Hermann. So she was the wife of Alexander Hermann, who was, by our standards today, a rock star Mm -hmm. of the 19th Mm -hmm. century. And this was a magician who, when we all close our eyes and think of what a magician looks like with the mustache and the goatee, Mm-hmm. We are actually all picturing Alexander. He was so popular that he ingrained himself into our public consciousness. Oh, wow. So uh, his posters were all over the place. Uh, a lot of men in his family had the same iconic look, and they were also magicians. So his older brother uh, had the mustache goatee, but Alexander was the one who made it famous. Mm. Um, he also was at the equivalent of what you might say a millionaire or a billionaire magician mm-hmm. because uh, he his shows were so wildly successful that – his older brother, who was also a magician, had to split the world. Um, his brother got Europe, and Alexander stayed in the U.S. from then on because they were just so in high demand. Alexander was actually starting to run his brother Compars out of business. Wow. wow. So 
Um, he comes here to the U.S. Uh, it's about uh, post-Civil War at this point, it's 1870s. He makes a career out of here. He tours through Mexico. He uh, works a lot of the country. And then eventually, um, of course, he's accruing a lot of wealth, but he's unfortunately really bad with finances. En route to one of his shows, he's also a heavy smoker, he dies of a heart attack. And he tells his wife, Adelaide, who up to this point had been an assistant Mm -hmm. and a very good one, had her own part in the show that was just her. Um, He tells her, you know, I'm not going to make it. Take the crew and perform. And not even having enough time to grieve, she actually has to not only keep the show going, but also sell off a lot of her husband's bad investments and pay off all of his debts. She became known as a queen of magic. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was the first time I had read about a woman in magic. And... For that point of my childhood up through high school, I thought it was perfectly natural to be a woman in magic. And I never thought twice about what did the implications of gender mean in magic. Mm -hmm. And then things started to change a little bit when I got older. Right. Um, So when you... When you, you you started as kind of a historian of magic, when did you kind of make the shift from reading about the history, getting to know the the you know, many magicians that came before you, when did you start performing or at least practicing your own? Your I would own? say probably about middle school. So within about a year or so of first reading Walter Gibson's book, and then it's pretty easy to kind of want to start doing magic when you start reading about everyone who yeah. does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went back to uh, my dad's books, uh, the more technical ones, and started picking up stuff out of there. And I did really simple effects. I had to learn how to shuffle a deck of cards. And uh, when you're a seven-year-old girl, your hands are kind of small. Mm-hmm. But my dad insisted I learn how to use poker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got me a pack of bridge cards, which are smaller and more slender. But he really insisted that I learn how to use poker. That way I could be on par with anyone else who does magic, as well as when you walk into someone else's house, they're probably going to have poker-sized cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was something that um, is roughly gender-related, but not something you would no- most magicians would think of. Mm-hmm. So uh, I kept going with that. Um, I did. Mo- I focused mostly on cards, did a little bit of coins, and then by high school was um, dabbling in like other small effects, did a little bit of rope and string magic. Uh, I was a weird kid in high school, <laughs> so you know, so I was the one who was like magic. super nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's one of those weird hobbies when you're a teenager at that point mm-hmm. and then in my junior year i want to start a magic club at my high school because that'd be fun yeah mm-hmm. um so actually it did gain a bit of interest there were a couple of other students who were also not only into magic but one of them uh his uh he had at that point been amateur slash uh semi-professional wow. so uh, he was actually getting gigs yeah. and stuff um and then uh about October 2007, uh, we had our first like really big meeting, and that's when one of my uh, my dad's old friends, Jack Goldfinger, who is our director of entertainment at the Academy of Magical Arts at the Magic Castle, uh, actually came over and performed for our school with his partner Dove. Mm-hmm. So Goldfinger and Dove uh, were a hot act. Um, I'm going to say through the 60s and 70s, but they're still great now. So <laughs> they actually performed at It's Magic last year in a very special uh, performance uh, for the 60th anniversary. So um, a little bit of background on my dad and Goldfinger was that, uh, so my dad's hobby growing up was magic. And when he was in his 20s, roughly the age I am now, uh, 
he would go over and, you know, hang out around different magic shows, go over and watch It's Magic. And at that time, It's Magic was playing at the Ebel Theater. That's also where it uh, reprised again for its 60th anniversary last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, he had seen Goldfinger and Dove. And he thought, whoa, this is an awesome act because they had the music, they had the dance moves. They were a fun magic act. And uh, so he goes over and he starts to speak with Jack Goldfinger and they hit it off and uh, sees them again later on at Variety Arts. So they uh, they became friends. And, um, you know, life picks up. So a decade or so later, they get in touch again. Then a couple more decades pass. I'm born. Uh, life goes on. And then uh, I'm doing this magic club in high school. Now I go, Dad, do you know any magicians? And he's like, well, you got me. And I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, real magicians. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, Dad. Yeah. So yeah, he gives me a look. And then he goes and digs through his stuff, and he finds Goldfinger's card. And he looks at the phone number on, and he says, okay, let's try it. He tries it. And Jack's wife, Dove, picks up. <laughs> and she goes, is this Richard? Oh, my <laughs> so, God. And then, uh, then Jack gets on the line, and they have a conversation. It was, it was my dad's own little time warp for that minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they very generously came over to my high school perform pro bono. They're Again, they are a very sweet and generous couple. And... Uh, they did their show in my uh, in one of my high school classrooms. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it was truly amazing to get to see live professionals in front of you. Those were the first, yeah, as far mm-hmm. as I can remember, Jack and Dove were the first professional magicians I had seen perform live in front of me at that point. And oh my gosh, they were at my high school. <laughs> amazing. So, and you got them there too. Yeah. Yeah. And I do have to say, I mean, to this day, I still call Jack my godfather in magic Aww. and Dove is my godmother. So they are very special people to me. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. It was really the first show that I, um, the first moment when I knew how close we connected the magic community is and how supportive it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get a taste in high school. I mean, not more than a taste, I think, in high school, like kind of an immersive experience uh, with the club. Um, is this where kind of gender started to play a factor? Or where do you think that kind of you, you felt that more? A little bit in high school because I did notice more guys were into magic, but I just also figured, eh, you know, it's one of those quote-unquote nerdy things. And, you know, this is a time when kids kind of, divide themselves into what's cool and not cool so Mm -hmm. I didn't think too hard about it in that moment and then I went to college and uh, I wanted to start a magic club in actually yeah again my junior year (laughs) this time in college and uh, I remember like we I was just hanging out with a couple of friends. This guy comes up to me says you want to see something cool he does a silk vanish and I turned to my roommate and I go like Maribel you got my cards and so we have a magic jam. And it was a magic to- jam? Yeah, it was totally impromptu. It was uh, just a lot of fun. And then later on, uh, this guy, Jason, and I, we stay in contact. And he says, you want to start a magic club? I'm like, yeah, I want to start a magic club. So we get a third person because you need three people to be your signatories. And we got started. Uh, and then I started to notice, gee, there's a lot more guys joining this thing. Mm-hmm. And also at that point, I had started um, doing the rudimentary research for what will become my senior thesis on women and the representation of magic history. Yeah. Uh, so going back to my original history roots here. Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, I had found an advisor and we had been discussing one about magic history, two, how do prominent uh, sectors of privilege and oppression, race, class, and gender play out in it? 
And you can go off about magic on any one of those, or any topic for that matter, on any one of those three sections. But magic most prominently features divides in gender. Mm-hmm. And so the more I began to, the more self-aware I became in this experience, both as a woman in magic and also doing my research, the more obvious it became like, this is something we need to discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why I would say that I really then began to pay more attention to what do those gender divides look like? What are the cliches and how do they still persist into our modern day perception of magic and who performs it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by that extension, who does magic get done to? Yeah. Right. Because yeah. so often the assistant is the female and the magician is the male. Do you find that since you've become more aware of it, has has the gender bias changed at all? Or do you think it's kind of staying with the status quo? Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that... Our society has become more aware mm-hmm. of it, um, but the experience of seeing magic, and magic to this day is one of the most low-tech-based arts. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, it's just done with, you know, first it was just done with smoke and mirrors, and now it's probably done with iPhones and video cameras or whatever, <laughs> but truth be told, magic actually relies on a lot of very simple technology. It's still sleight of hand driven. It's still very theater based. It's um, it's an art form. And by that extension, when you see a magic show, you're somewhat being dragged back in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that time travel, you experience the gender roles that accompany that, that shift. So um, without getting too far ahead here, though, I do want to say that those gender divides weren't always in magic. So, or at least modern magic as we know it today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we go back a little bit, um, one of the first instances of gender divides that we'll see with relation to the supernatural is when we get the Salem witch trials, and it was a really easy way to accuse old haggerty women that men didn't care for (laughs) about, you know, um, casting a spell on their cow or whatever. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a way to socially ostracize people, and again, keep women specifically in a subservient gender role. Mm -hmm. One of the things that magic in its greater context uh, makes some people uncomfortable is that it is somewhat, it relies on power dynamics. Mm -hmm. And in order to have an effective magic show, the spectator is intentionally without the same amount of information as a performing magician. And when you have that scenario, we're doing it for entertainment. We all understand it's in good fun. You occasionally get the spectator who wants to not have fun and pick apart a magic show. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could say that the same thing about orchestra. I mean, if you say that it's the violin is just made of cat guts, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily I don't believe that, that doesn't necessarily help you enjoy music anymore. <laughs> so even if you know how magic is performed, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to that you should stop enjoying the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, there are some magicians, historically and today, who abuse that privilege of power, and instead of making their audience go, ah, they make their audience go, So, uh, you always want to leave your audience with the impression of wanting more, and it's a bad magician who makes their audience feel stupid. Mm -hmm. However, 
going back to that power play, yeah. when you have men who are being made to feel quote unquote less in power or less aware of knowledge that a woman has, mm -hmm. that automatically then puts them at the disadvantage and in a patriarchal society is not cool. Yeah. Makes them angry. Yeah. Right. So now we'll fast forward a little bit. We'll go into uh, the ninth, late 19th century. Assistants at this time in history are men. They're actually young boys or very young adolescent men mm -hmm. who are used in performances and they usually play the role of assistant. They usually play the role of the person who gets their head sliced off. Magic has some interesting gory illusions if you look back. And <laughs> uh, so this is the role that men play. Why? Because women in theater are not necessarily a, uh, a socially acceptable profession to have. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so you have this point when the trope of the female assistant doesn't exist yet. Then we go forward into the 20th century. Damsel in distress tropes become a little bit more intriguing to the audiences, and then women get the right to vote in the UK. So at this point, you now have um, an illusion engineer, P.T. Selbit. Uh, his real name was Percy Thomas. Thomas Tibbles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Percy I, Thomas Tibbles, what a name. Adorable. Yeah, I would... Um, I would change my name. <laughs> anyway, so P.T. Selbit um, invents this uh, invents this illusion called sawing through a woman. He specifically wants to saw through a woman because they gain the right to vote. And the first volunteers he comes he asks to come up to uh, from to perform this illusion are indeed fucker. suffragettes. Yes. Oh, yes. oh <laughs> Jesus! I cannot wait to know more about this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Go on. So, so the year is. Um, 19, December 1920-ish. And uh, anyways, this illusion is successful. Ooh. People love it. They want more of they it. They want to see more women sold in half. Those yeah. suffragettes. So the illusion makes its way across the pond over here. Horace Golden, a uh, Polish-American uh, magician, picks it up. And uh, of course, like here, guess what happens next year? Mm. Women yep. get right to vote. And at this point now, you have an illusion that's catch on like wildfire. So men want to see women put in boxes. They want mm -hmm. to see them back in a position of vulnerability, mm -hmm. of oppression, of what they were like before they had the right to vote. Yeah. And this is why sawing a woman in half is a heavily political illusion. Yes. Yeah. It's so I had no idea. I know. Yeah, it is it's it's crazy what you do. Yeah. <laughs> So this illusion now also comes under fire for a lot of copyright reasons. Uh, it gets called everything from sign a woman half, sign through a woman, the sign, um, woman divided. So anyways, at this point, it is beyond the original creator's control, who did, by the way, go on to make other illusions called the crushing, the stretching. Um, he had a really weird obsession with body horror, and mm -hmm. he usually wanted to use women. So, yeah, oof. Yeah. Fun guy. Mommy issues, He's maybe? single. <laughs> yeah, we're going to leave that over there. But moving on to whole... All this, this is when women now became a cliche of magic. Mm. And again, remember, this is uh, 1920s. Roughly, if you go, if you watch a magic show and you see a man in the tux and a woman um, as the assistant, you're kind of allowing yourself to time travel back to a point where these are the gender roles. Mm -hmm. And this is what has been established as protocol. So... I do want to also point out that women assistants or assistants in general do a lot of the work in the show. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. goes uh, highly underappreciated by most general audiences and not always acknowledged by some magicians, some male magician performers. Mm. And 
I say this because, one, I want to make a plug for Women in Boxes, a documentary that if you haven't seen it, focuses on female assistants, specifically in magic. Oh, amazing. Yay. And their stories, it, it, is, it is awesome. You can find it on Netflix. Awesome. Uh, wait, not Netflix, excuse me, Amazon. Um, and uh, the other point, though, is, is that from being assistants, I would say that women have been standalone magicians. Again, there at this time in history, there was also Alain Hermann, who was holding her title as Queen of Magic. Mm-hmm. She passed away in 1930 during the Depression. Um, but you do also have this cult of domesticity that is becoming increasingly entrenched now with what's going to become World War II America. Mm-hmm. So women in magic maintain this kind of second fiddle role. I would say that now, contemporary women in magic, um, if you want to be an assistant, it is okay to be an assistant. And if you want to be a standalone magician, that's totally okay, too. So what we have, though, now is a struggle for visibility mm-hmm. and breaking down what has now become a almost century-old trope of seeing women in this position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So so relating it back to your own personal experience... Um, do you feel like you are combating that perception all the time? Or do you think that um, in in the community you've kind of uh, not overcome it, but you've kind of found your path? And... Yeah. So I would say that, um, well, you never stop ever being a woman in magic when you're yeah. a woman in magic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's uh, there has been uh, the debate of, do I get called a female magician? Am I just a magician? Do I want to maintain my identity? You know, mm-hmm, yeah. um, is it okay if I want to be sexy or is that, you know, selling out somehow? So yeah. there's always going to be the self-questioning. And our community has many diverse perspectives on it because we are many and diverse people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say that sexism is still persistent in our community. Mm-hmm. Is it approved of? No. Um, actually, I do want to give a shout out to Derek Delgadio, who uh, made a public statement that he does not appreciate sexism and magic and any magicians who still act that way or demean or devalue their assistants um, should really and literally get their acts together. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it it is something you still see. And um, I... Uh, I want to be respectful of the uh, different stories I share, but I'll, I'll share my experience. Absolutely. Great. Um, so I will speak only on my own behalf in this case. But uh, so we have had. Um, so I'll go through uh, one of my own stories. Um, uh, one of the times I can say that I definitely felt like my own place in the magic community was different from a male magician mm-hmm. was um i was i was with a group of other magicians it was it was a party um just uh someone's home and stuff like that we were chatting and um i had expressed yeah i wouldn't mind um working as a you know part of a duo on a magic show or um getting some experience doing stage performances and a magician i was talking to said oh stand up I stood up. I'm like, okay. And then he looks me up and down. He says, yeah, you'll fit. And that is the insinuation of fitting into a box. Mm-hmm. I'm a petite woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- For those <laughs> listeners, uh, Lindsay <laughs> and my yeah. face were like, uh-uh. No. <laughs> 
And the idea of you'll fit into a box just reminded me of, oh, I'm the one who gets sawn in half. I'm mm-hmm. the one who gets lit on fire. I'm the one who gets put into little pieces and get put gets put back together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're going to be the one to take the bow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's, um, I declined the offer. Uh, <laughs> it is a regular reminder. I've also seen performing magicians who um, who make really crass jokes that are sexist. Um, a uh, one male magician. This was about three years ago or so. Um, was performing, and he called up a uh, female volunteer from the audience, and he was explaining, "Okay, you're going to do the magic now," and she goes, "Okay." Uh, Again, this is also one of those bad magicians who has a poor sense of showmanship in that it became a power play dialogue. Mm -hmm. But he began joking around, um, air quotation marks, uh, with, oh, okay, wow, a woman doing magic. You really don't see that around. Uh, What do you call, what do you even call that? Is that like a magina? Yeah. And you know he was so proud of that joke. I know. That's the, and Uh, I don't think, mercifully, I don't think even the audience laughed at that one. Good. Good. He so, does not deserve a I laugh. Know, like mm. old guard, like. Mm-hmm. And then we do occasionally. Um, I will say now within my greater community, there have been reports of being harassed mm-hmm. by yeah. not just other men but male magicians. It's it's not always a. I don't want to say it's not always a welcoming community because that's not what I mean to say. It's um, not always understood in the sense of. You need to grow out of your, your sexist background. Mm-hmm. Because when magicians, and I say this for both men and women, when newcoming magicians really want to join the community, they're they're welcome. It's those biases and implicit perceptions that ultimately can hinder or pigeonhole a career. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, though, that I am proud of, especially, is that, um, so I finished the senior thesis in 2013. Uh, I, I graduated from UCLA, and that's where I completed it, uh, and later on presented it at the Magic Castle, uh, and did a um, presented that in January. And then at that time, another uh, woman in magic, Lee Tu Hong, uh, whose day job is being an attorney and uh, is all around awesome 24 hours a day, <laughs> said, why don't we pass around a sign-up sheet to see if anyone wants to form a women magician's group? I go, wow, okay, cool. Yeah. So we had a lot of people attending that night for this uh, perk lecture. And we got a lot of signups. Three months later, we had our first meeting in April 2014. Wow. And not only are we now three and a half years old, we just, and this is what I mean by our community is welcoming. We just gained approval to be welcomed by the Academy of Magical Arts, the organization that owns and operates the Magic Castle, Mm -hmm. to become our own committee. We are the women magicians association and officially ama recognized committee congratulations thank you that's tremendous wait how Mm -hmm. many women are 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 in your community like how many women are so we have um 80 of us on facebook (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and you can join our facebook page friends of the wma Mm-hmm. Our friends of the Women's Magicians Association. You know we will. Anyone can join that. Uh, if you are a woman in magic and you have become a member of the Academy of Magical Arts or if you are seeking to become one, please send us a private Facebook message and we will 
uh, offer any mentorship or supports we can provide. And when you pass your membership exam, we will gladly welcome you to our private Facebook group. Oh. <laughs> uh, so we are definitely about the advancement of women in magic mm-hmm. and promoting the art for uh, any up and coming female magicians. Uh, age does not matter in our group. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you are young and in high school or um, if you, I mean, our membership ranges from old enough to be admitted to the uh, AMA, which is 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a junior division yet, so we don't have any junior members. Um, two, we have a a retired professor from Santa Monica City College. Oh. So we are, uh, we're a very wide range group. We regularly have about 15 to almost 20 members in attendance at our monthly meetings. It's a very strong, and I would say healthy group. So That's wonderful. I am proud to have seen this group really come to fruition over yeah, the past absolutely. Years. So mm-hmm. can people come to your group if they want a magician for um, like a gig or yeah, something like that? Yeah, definitely. Oh, man. So awesome. I've um, I've had people email me through my website saying, hey, can you or any magicians you know um, come to my kid's birthday party or we're looking for a close-up magician or we're looking for a Halloween magician. And so um, – I usually put it out onto our Facebook page and say, like, guys, gig opening. Yeah. <laughs> we usually mm-hmm. ask that if you email me or you post it to our Friends of the WMA Facebook page, which will reach many more of us, mm-hmm. um, include the uh, the venue, the time of day, and the number of people you want, and also what kind of magic you want. Mm-hmm. So when most people think about magic, they usually think, you know, big stage illusions, uh, some magicians have dancing tiger or have tigers. Some have dancing girls. Some of us have a budget. So, <laughs> uh, there are stage magicians in our group, but we also have close up. We also have um, what you might say parlor size to so someone who does like classroom size magic. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all different uh, levels of magic, I would say. Um, so close-up is definitely one that if you have an intimate gathering of folks there are professional magicians uh shout out to paul green who can memorize up to 150 names at a party oh my god and his i don't even know your name yeah (laughs) his professional promise is that he will leave um making sure he will arrive making sure he gets to meet everyone they all get to experience a little bit of magic so uh our group can do close-up um, we can also do parlor size shows. Uh, Mystiki is a duo in our group, um, comprised of the team Elizabeth Messick and Simone Trickington. So, uh, I have emceed for them a couple of times. They are both fantastic magicians. They play off each other really well. We have standalone magicians like Kayla Drescher, who does, um, bar magic as well as parlor. Um, she is actually just everyone in our group is all levels of awesome. So... <laughs> I would definitely say if you want a woman magician um, to come to your party or private event, please feel free to reach out to our WMA Facebook group. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Everyone, you hear that? Yeah. This is where to go. Get some magic in your lives. Right? Yes. (laughs) Um, So, Angela, what's your favorite type of magic to perform? Oh, close up. Yeah. 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 Uh, So I'm still into my whole cards and coin stuff. Yeah. Um, Close up, also called table magic sometimes, is or now with trendy dialogue out there micro magic oh um, of course it, yeah. <laughs> everybody loves micro right? uh-huh. bitcoin magic that... oh, sorry everyone i'm sorry that sounds troubling actually <laughs> yeah i don't know how i feel about that saying that no processing no. it um, uh but so i like close-up um because it's something you can do in front of people uh it, they can reach out and touch it you can uh it's very close contact to me close-up is the closest you will come to real magic 
Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, I I also love magic with everyday objects. Uh, when when I see a magician who takes a salt shaker or a bottle of wine or something that I would normally see every day, it it makes my day to be like, oh, ooh. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, let's see here. Uh, I have an appreciation for stage magic. Um, and there are many magicians who do it well. It is not something that I have gotten into, so it's not a type of magic that I perform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, and you, you, uh, let's, uh, you do a couple other things, too. Can you tell us a little bit about your life uh, aside from magic? Yeah. Sure. So um, my professional life is that I work in the philanthropic sector. Oh, nice. Uh, which means that I get to be the millionaire I'm not. I give away money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my portfolio is specifically in college success. I see that students are able to uh, not only enter college, but more specifically graduate with a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. We don't make scholarships. Uh, what we do is that we grant make to organizations that specifically outreach to students and provide either coaching services or on a, gra- on a broader scale uh, work with universities and associations of campuses in order to see that best practices are being spread across. Mm-hmm. So uh, the organization I work for is ECMC Foundation. We're based in LA, but we give nationally. Cool. Um, other things I do outside of uh, my two geektastic uh, backgrounds <laughs> <laughs> is uh, that I, uh, I have a children's book. Uh, Scruffing the Egg is available on Amazon, and it is a children's story about a, uh, a dog who's abandoned by his owners, mm-hmm. goes in an epic quest to find them, and winds up finding a uh, family that he wasn't expecting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, bad puns. <laughs> I love every type of pun under the sun. Pun it up. Yes. Uh, The story itself is meant to capture themes of single parenthood, homelessness, and adoption. I have a a very personal connection to the homeless community, and um, I also am a board member for School on Wheels, Inc., which provides academic support services for K-12 students experiencing homelessness. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. You do so much. You do. Yeah, only 24 hours in a day, too. I know, right? (laughs) Um, but I have so many more questions about magic. So yes. we can switch gears back to magic. Of course, um, definitely. Yeah, can you tell us, uh, so when you're performing for people, like, uh, yeah, can you tell us a story about maybe the, the power dynamic or um, a time where you, I, I don't know, I guess I'm phrasing this very well, um, just an anecdote about, about your life uh, doing parties, events, kind of things. Okay. Um, so I usually do close-up. I am most comfortable doing close-up, mm-hmm. again, because it happens right here. I prefer having a table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the first time I did uh, I did magic for a bigger audience um, was for a, uh, a six-year-old girl's going-away slash birthday party. Mm-hmm. So her family was moving, and they wanted to have a party out in Pacific Palisades. This is when uh, a lot of magic, again, you have to do and you don't really know what works for your act until you perform in front of other people. Right. And when you finally get that real world experience. For me, being out here at there in uh, Pacific Palisades on a windy day <laughs> in front of a bunch of six-year-olds, which I normally don't do children audiences. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I realized I don't do children audiences. <laughs> <laughs> Hard lesson uh-huh. in the field. Um, I had put together some um, some effects uh, for that. They went off well, but it was the hardest show I'd ever done. 
And when you are a magician, you definitely do not want to be struggling against several other factors in just trying to provide a good show. Yeah. So uh, I was doing what's called a three-card Monty, which is where you have uh, two cards are the same and then one card that is different. Usually it's done with two kings and a queen, and the queen is what you're supposed to track mm-hmm. as a spectator. Um, so for this, I had some jumbo-sized cards, and uh, they uh, I had a park bench to work with, and then my audience was in front of me. And they're six. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to them, cards all look the same at this yeah. point. Um, they asked, they kept asking if I would produce a bunny. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God. And I was like, I don't have the budget for a bunny. I <laughs> think I am. I can barely feed myself. It's usually ramen. So, I know. <laughs> so I was, this was like my first post-college performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so at that point, um, you know, their parents appreciated the effect. Uh the kids liked it more when I moved on to sponge balls and did things that were a little bit more colorful and yeah. changed mm-hmm. silk colors and stuff like that. And then when I produced candy out of a cereal box at the end, they thought that was awesome. Yeah. It made me really think about what do audiences appreciate? When you're a magician, you actually have to be highly empathetic. Again, this is why power play magicians don't really come off very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because the point of being a magician, one, yes, you have the two dialogues running through your head, you know, what am I going to say? The specter is going to say this, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what you have to be most conscientious of is how will your spectator react to things? I think where perhaps some magicians mess up and the ones who leave their audiences in, uh, instead of ah, mm-hmm. um, is that they fail to empathize with the audience. And you want to bring that full circle back to being a woman in magic. It again goes back to a failure of empathy to understand what it's like to be a woman in magic. Absolutely. Yeah. So. When you are a magician, you know, whether your audiences are six years old or 60 or it's their 16th birthday, you should always be conscientious of, will this play well? What would they like? Kids want a bunny. I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's also a point that I need to be conscious of. What do children like? They mm-hmm. like big colors. They like simple things. They like effects that go like this. They don't want to have to memorize a card and follow it. Right. Mm-hmm. Adult audiences can track that. And they want something that's a little bit more complex. And maybe they want a storyline to go with it. Maybe it's not so much of, you know, what goes poof in front of them as much as like, oh, wow, you know, how did this get over there? And how does this relate to something bigger or more cosmic? Uh, something that I guess kind of plays well with my coworkers is when I do like a ghost story with some of my magic. Oh, that's awesome. That's right. A little bit of failure of empathy on my part because I kind of like to watch them get freaked out. (laughs) 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 But uh, again, though, it all ties back to um, what do, what can you anticipate from your audience? Mm -hmm. And being a good magician, even when you mess up in a show, is tied back to recovery. And when you build that rapport with your audience, they one, they start to trust you. They are letting you I hate this phrase, but they are letting you fool them. Mm-hmm. And it's done though in good nature. And when you're having fun with your audience member, they don't feel like they're being duped. Yeah. You're giving them an experience of sharing magic with them. One of uh I'm sorry I cannot remember right off the bat right now um which magician said this. Um but one of the theories of magic is that the magician has three roles to play. Victim, murderer, spectator. Mm. So, and 
Uh, so murderer is the magician who's like, I am so much better than you. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Boom, I'm <mind> blown. <laughs> you know? And then uh, victim is a magician who goes, I don't know how that happened. Whoa. <laughs> you know? And sometimes that plays well. Other times that comes off as cheesy. Mm-hmm. And that, that's like, you really have to navigate that one carefully. And then I personally like kind of spectator because that means the magician is sharing the experience with you. Mm-hmm. And he lets the audience enjoy the show as much as he is. Being a magician, you will perform some effects over and over and over again. And you will you can recite every single line that's going to come out of your mouth in your sleep. You can perform it perfectly every single time, which you should as a performing magician. But the second you stop appreciating it, that's when you fail your audience. Yeah. And when you're just going through the motions, it's that's when you lose the magic of an effect. Your effect can be mind-blowing. But if you aren't having the same moment of seeing it for the first time as your audience is, then there becomes a disconnect and you lose another point of empathy with your audience mm-hmm. because then you yeah. stop seeing it. I think for a lot of magicians in our community, that is part of the fun of magic, is that when we show it to someone else who hasn't seen it before, it's like we're seeing it again for the first time. We get to geek out and be little kids all over again, too. Oh, that's wonderful. I feel like that's a great lesson for so many aspects of life. Um, Um, Keeping it new and, yeah, your relationship, talking a lot about your relationship to your audience mm -hmm. is is something that's so special. Yeah, and and keeping the joy in everything that you do. I've seen a lot of good magicians do it well. In terms of... um, my WMA friends who uh, who I've seen perform and have this moment with their with their audiences, Suzanne um, is uh, is an award winner for Penn and Teller's Fool Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, has uh, won Best Close Up Magician of the Year award through the AMA, and um, she lives in Minnesota. But whenever she's down here in LA, all of us go crazy for her. Mm-hmm. She does close up, and she shares these experiences with her audiences so well. Uh, I mean what I would give to be the person who sits at Suzanne's table and you get to kind of trip out with her whenever she goes, look at that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and lifts up, you know, she, she does this great cups and balls routine. And when you're done with it, having watched Suzanne and watched her um, spectator who gets a lucky snot that gets to sit right there next to her, you know, I get to watch their expression and go like, wow, you know, and I look at Suzanne and she has the exact same look on her face. Wow. That's and so I cool. think that this is that's magic right there. Yeah. And that's when you get to see two people sharing something and enjoying it. And that's when it's no longer practice. Mm-hmm. I love that. So what is a professional goal for you or some of your professional goals as a magician? As a magician? Oh, shoot, if I can get to that level yeah. <laughs> where, I, where I'm sharing that moment. And um, I mean, so one of the things I do right now, uh, I MC for a couple of our WMA performers at uh, my local bookshop called Bookshow LA. Mm-hmm. I live in Highland Park. Bookshow LA is on Figueroa Street between uh, Avenue 56 and 57. It's right near the B of A. And it's a small space. Mm-hmm. So we do parlor level magic. I uh, I introduce and open for uh, Mystiki. That's the uh, the duo with uh, Simone and Elizabeth and mm-hmm. also Kayla Drescher, who is a standalone professional magician. And um, I do a couple of effects before they come on. So one is just introducing the audience to principles of magic. And another is um, what is... Um, what is showing the audience um, an effect 
You'll notice I don't say tricks for this. Tricks are for kids. Mm-hmm. Wrap it on the cereal box. Um, <laughs> it's like a skit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I show the audience an effect. And then I show them how the effect works. And then something they weren't expecting it happens. So in this case, um, I show them how to turn a silk into an egg. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they see the egg one more time. The silk turns into the egg. And they've been told, oh, this is a fake egg. You know, it has a hole on one side. Um, Of course, you know, that's where the silk is going to hide. And at the end, I close with, make sure that no one can see this silk. Um, Poking out of your egg and remove a piece of silk that is on the egg. Get rid of it. And then I crack the egg and I open it into a uh, a glass. Oh, that's awesome. So, and I remember one of the times I performed that, a woman who was sitting right in front of me in the front row goes, (laughs) 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 And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And that's what I live for. I live for the, (laughs) yeah. I live for the, ooh, you know, and the, no way. (laughs) So I would say that as a magician, um, those are the hallmarks in my career that I strive for. Absolutely. To hear more of the, wow, no way, stop. (laughs) (laughs) So when you hear folks having those visceral reactions to what you're doing, that is the fun part of all this. Mm -hmm. And um, when, uh, so I perform a little bit for my coworkers too. Um, One of them had a housewarming party a couple weeks ago. Um, I pulled out a pack of cards and I said, guys, we got a magician here. (laughs) So so, uh, we, uh, we did a few card effects and stuff like that. And they sat there and go, whoa, no way. Oh, my gosh. And uh, at one point, I was still I was still going with an effect because it's a full routine. And someone says, you're not done yet. There's more. <laughs> and that is also one of the hallmarks of magic. You always want to leave your audience wanting more, not begging you to stop. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so as a magician, I would say that, um, one, I achieved one of my own personal goals, which was become a member of the Academy of Magical Arts of the Magic Castle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that is a big bucket list checkoff for me. I um, It has been one of the best communities I've been able to be a part of. Uh, I would like to give a shout out to uh, the librarians, Lisa Cousins and Bill Goodwin, who allowed me to actually use the uh, the castle's library to do preliminary research for my Women in Magic thesis. Oh, very nice. When yeah. I applied for membership. I applied as a magic historian, which means you have to do a magic routine and present your research. Wow. So, <laughs> so, Double whammy. Yeah, exactly. the cool thing about um, applying for membership at the AMA is that, um, one, they uh, they say, okay, it's 15 minutes long. You have a review committee. So you're not going to show – they're all professional magicians. They're all veterans in the field. You aren't going to show anyone anything new. Mm-hmm. It is very intimidating. It's like comedian telling jokes for their comics. Yeah. Uh, so, but what they do also say is if you do not pass, you will get assigned a mentor. There is also no quota on the number of people who pass. So if everyone in your group is good, then everyone in your audition group passes and becomes members. Yeah. Um, it's really a community that wants you to join. So definitely when I say that it is a welcoming group, I always want to underscore that. Magic is welcoming. Mm-hmm. And um, and now having the WMA allows us to show a new dynamic to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I will also say that uh, when I performed uh, for my audition, it is one of the most nerve-wracking experiences yeah, you will ever have. Because you're in one of the showrooms at the castle. And it's a close-up table, and you have the bright lights in your eyes. 
and everyone else is just sitting in the audience. So you know they're there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't see them. It's a Chuck Norris moment. Yeah. <laughs> and they're Chuck Norris. Um, and uh, one of the things that I was warned about, too, was make sure you have 20 minutes of material. You That's be, a lot of material. Yeah. Yes. You will be told you have about 10 to 15 minutes. But in case it's a slow night, they might just say keep going. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so word to the wise there. Um, and I had a blast. When I got to talk about my research, I had also presented a one-unit course at UCLA on minority magicians. Cool. So I taught that in spring quarter of my senior year, and it was it covered the topics of race, class, gender, identity, and uh, Jewish magicians as well. So getting to kind of go off on that for a while was also a another part of my research that I really enjoyed sharing mm-hmm. as well. Oh, man. Really, what the AMA looks for most is that you are passionate about magic and you are going to do the best you can to represent it in its best light in both performance and, in this case, uh, scholarship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I would say that um, I've lectured twice at the castle so far. I would like to go back for a third time. Definitely. But, yeah. I feel like you have so much knowledge that even seasoned magicians probably have no idea about. You know, with all your historical, yeah, the background wealth the of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's. I will also say I always defer to the big three on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Of, um, shut up. I think Ricky Jay lives in Los Angeles. Uh, Ricky Jay, um, Jim Steinmeier, and Mike Caveney are the big three of magic history. Wow. <laughs> and both of them have very beautiful collections. Uh, Wonderful. Some of them were on display at the Ball Center just a few years ago too. Oh, very cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. I would say that in terms of. Uh, other magic career life goals. I need to get myself out to Magic Live. That's a big one for me. Where is that? Um, it uh, is usually held in Las Vegas every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it's a it's a wonderful geektastic magic convention. <laughs> uh, and probably um, get out to um, there is a Blackstone Museum. Blackstone uh, senior magician uh, over in what's it called Marshall, Michigan mm-hmm. and I want to get out there uh, basically get to visit as many private collections as I can because yeah. that's that's what I love to sink my teeth into and you feel like you're touching history for a little bit Yeah, our magic history community did lose one of its pillars recently uh, James Hamilton who I affectionately referred to as the Alexander Hermann fanboy Mm. who stylized his own mustache and goatee um, just the way Alexander did uh, passed away earlier this year and he was one of the coolest people I ever had the privilege of meeting Uh, his um, his colleague and also my friend Margaret Steele continues to carry on the Hermann legacy and she lives over in New York awesome well this has been a real pleasure chatting with you and learning so much Um, we we Oh, Rebecca? I no, you do it. No, you do you it. Do it. <laughs> well, we usually like to ask all of our guests, um, what advice would you give to young women? It doesn't have to be magic-oriented. It can be. But just what advice would you give in making your way in the world as a modern woman? So just for the magic-oriented uh aspect of it join the wma (laughs) (laughs) if you live in los angeles um please reach out to our wma we always love to hear from aspiring women magicians as well as current women in magic and uh if you do not live in la start your own wma 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, the more the merrier, really. This is not a competitive. It is a cooperative group. We are definitely here to support one another as best as we can. Uh, I will also say that in general for advice to young women, uh, don't tell yourself no. Don't be the first person to ever tell yourself no. And I come at this from the perspective of this is advice that I give to students when I talk about scholarships and financial aid, because a lot of students will tell themselves, oh, I'm not going to make the deadline for that. I'm not going to be selected by the committee, whatever. Um, and I think, though, that philosophy also plays out for us in a lot of opportunities that we might have other had, otherwise have had in life, but we didn't pursue or we told ourselves no before someone else did. Uh being a woman in magic, there will be times when people tell you no, whether directly to your face or indirectly in some other maybe derisive way. And that can come from not just a poor male performer, it can even come from audiences who perhaps have never had a female magician before or understand what that means or regularly recognize you. So that being said, um, don't let yourself say, well, no one's going to take me seriously as a performing magician. I would always say challenge that notion, put yourself out there, and you do eventually also find inroads to those communities because the more persistent you are and when people find out you're not likely to go away anytime soon, <laughs> yep. you usually wind up making headway in it. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely, to me, one of the greatest rewards about being persistent in this space is having developed a wonderful community of supportive magicians, both female and male, who have been extremely welcoming and quite obviously now with the recognition of our WMA community, um, dedicated to seeing that uh, women in magic are supported and that we begin to change this dynamic for many of us. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, for this being has been here. so. I feel like my brain has been so so filled with knowledge, and I know I can't I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Yeah, thank and are excited by it. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to tell our audience one more time where they can find you and the WMA? Yeah, sure. So again, my name is Angela Sanchez. Uh, you can find me at www.angelamsanchez.com, and. Uh, for our WMA, please, 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 please check out our Facebook page, Friends of the Women Magicians Association on Facebook. And uh, feel free to post any uh, requests for uh, performing female magicians. Or uh, if you would like to just ask a question about where you can find more resources, we always answer, answer that page. Our uh, current board of directors for our WMA includes... Uh, Dana Douglas, as well as um, Simone from our Mystiki duo, and also uh, Donna Lee as well. So there are a um, there are a lot of us who are already very responsive on that page, and I myself will always keep an eye out for it too. Great, Great. Mm -hmm. thank you, thank you so much, thank you. <laughs>